This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor. My co-host is Warren Advisor Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Also today, we have a special co-host, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, in the studio with us. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We have a special guest in the studio today, Annie Duke, author of a great new book, Book, Thinking in Bets. Annie, welcome to our studio today. Well, thanks for having me. We're looking forward to digging into Annie's research, her book, her thoughts on thinking in bets and why most decisions are bets and can be thought about that. We're going to talk to Annie for the, for the full hour. Professor Siegel, while we have you for some, some market commentary, any thoughts on, on just the, the week we've had? Sort of a, a slow week in terms of news, yeah. but what, what any thoughts on where we are? Well, you know, I, I said this was a healthy correction. We had too many bandwagon people that were riding the trend, and they got slapped. <laughs> and I think we're settling down. I think I think we're going to settle down to around twenty seven hundred on the S and P um, for a little while, um, as we see how high interest rates will go. Um, uh, now, they. Actually, we're going to get a little bit of taste of Jay Powell, the new uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, next week. Uh, on Tuesday, he is going to testify before the uh, House um, uh, Financial Services Committee, and then on Thursday before the Senate. Um, of course, uh, that will be a prelude to March 21st, which is a very, very important Fed meeting. First one of Jay Powell, first news conference for Jay Powell, a new set of dots, the dot plot, the new Fed funds projections. Um, uh, I, I did say I was on CNBC and a number of other stations saying that the people overreacted uh, to the Fed minutes that were uh, out uh, earlier. That was all based on, on, on news on January 29th and, and things, uh, you know, have have changed. Um, in fact, the latest estimate I get for this quarter's GDP is down to 2.0 percent. Uh, so, you know, we, we're still having that growth problem, but the labor market's still very strong. Um, claims are down, which means it's looking again towards another 150,000 plus months for payroll. And again, you know, that question that we've been asking is how low can the unemployment rate go uh, before we get enough shortages to really spark some wage increases uh, or not. Goldman Sachs came out with a kind of provocative five increases this uh, year. Uh, year Again, we've only used to increases at the quarterly rate, so that would mean either a 50 basis point hike on one of the meetings or a uh, interim uh, meeting hike of, of, of 25. Do, does the Fed know? No, they don't know. They're, they are just like we are. They're just waiting for that data to come through and they make the decision as a basis of that data. So, you know, the Fed uh, has its own projections, but they are very data dependent. And you know, anyone who tries to, you know, you know, psych out what the Fed's going to do is a sort of silly exercise. Psych out what you think inflation and economic growth is going to do, and that'll give you a guide towards what's going to happen on the 10-year, and then and the Fed will be directed by 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 that sort of market uh, uh, phenomenon. Yeah, so, so teasing out a little bit of the conversation we're going to be having with Annie, who likes to think in probabilities and think about bets in terms of probabilities. I know you're looking at the Fed, just talking about the Fed, the, the market seems to be pricing in less than three or less than three rate hikes this year. If you were to put a probability for yourself on how you think the Fed, you know, you, you're saying you can't, they don't know, but yeah. for, for where you think the market is today, how you're judging the probabilities, any any sense there on the rate hikes? Well, you know, it's in, if, if, we, if we take a look at... Uh, the January 2000 Fed funds, it's 213 um, uh, at the present time. And now that's three rate hikes. But as I teach my class here, um, 
Fed funds is an underestimate of the true prob- probability because there's a hedge in Fed funds. In other words, if real bad economic news comes in, uh, the Fed will not hike, and therefore by buying these Fed funds contracts, you have a hedge. And as a result, that's a, it's a bias, it's a downward bias estimate um, of, of what it's, it's going to be. My, my feeling is at this point with a big standard error, we're going to have four increases, but don't forget four. Four increases just takes us to 215 to 250, and if uh, by then we're going to have the 10-year above three, uh, we're still 100 basis points positive slope on the term structure. I wouldn't get nervous about inversion. I see no signs that the expansion is ending, um, or the Fed needs to fear about inverting the curve. So. That's an early, but I'll be looking at the data, and the Fed will too. I mean, we're going to look at commodity prices, you can look at oil prices, you can look at the dollar. Uh, these are all market uh, signals for whether the Fed is going too fast or not. So, you know, people say, is the Fed going to make a classic mistake? And I'm going to say the Fed looks at the market as much as everyone else, and they, they will slow down. I mean, take a look at what happened. You know, we, we, we know at the beginning of 2016 when we had a crash of oil, crash of commodities, People were talking about two, three, four increases, and they only did one or two because they realized that they maybe overdone it a little bit early. So they look at the market, and they will be looking at the market through 2018. And, uh, you know, that's a dynamic process by which they uh, determine how many increases uh, there's going to be. But the, the bottom line is the same. We're going to have great earnings that are challenged by higher rates, and as a result, the market is going to be – uh, up and down with a modest gain, I think, by year end. Very good. Um, any one one final question for you? I, you know, I, I like to ask questions to you that I often get asked. And we we you know, as the market as the market keeps going up over the last six seven years, rates have been so low that there's been no pressure. And I'm seeing some signs from people who are saying, well, maybe I should take this advantage to sort of reduce my equity exposure and get just the safer fixed income. Do you see that being a continued theme that as rates keep moving up, the yeah. sort of older generations might, uh, this, and this, this gentleman was over 70, 70 plus and saying, yeah. you know, maybe I should just reduce my risk now that, now that we've getting rates moving up. Well, first of all, when you get older, you know, depending on your profile, you might want to get, you know, reduce risk just from that. Uh, you also realize that the 10-year rate is right now 286, actually down from early morning, which is 292, but 286 is almost exactly one percentage point above the S&P 500 um, dividend yield. Uh, so, you know, you're, you know, for most of the post-crisis period, we've had a dividend yield above that 10 years. So now we've got a 10-year, 100 basis points above of that dividend yield now, you know, I, I think it's still a no-brainer. You want to go with a dividend yield that's going up over time, inflation protected, et cetera, and so on. But yet, as a lot of people just take a look at that, the, those current rates. So that's that's what really, uh, you know, uh, is is the challenge there. Um, you know, the the 10-year tips is three quarters of a of a of basis point, 75 basis points. And the dividend yield on, on, on stocks is three times that, two to three times that level. So, you know, I, I, I still think it's a new, no-brainer there on, on the stocks. But, uh, you know, in terms of just outright earn, earning income right away, that's, that's uh, what is in people's minds. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that it becomes a little more challenging from being a no-brainer to what I have to really think about, do I, you know, is that what I want to get income and gains over over time? Well, very good. Thanks for joining us for the the quick commentary, Professor. Thank you very much, and I'll see you next week. Very good. Uh, so I, I mentioned before, Wes Gray is joining us in the studio again as a co-host today. He invited Annie Duke, his uh, his friend, to the show. Uh, Annie, again, thanks for joining us. Um, so you, you back here on Penn's campus, you started you part of your, you know background was doing a psychology major or, or master's PhD here. How did you go from psychology to thinking about, you know, becoming a professional poker player, had big success in, in that World Series circuit? Maybe talk a little bit about your, your starting point here at Penn and then going off to poker and then now to thinking about advising people on how to incorporate poker into their decision making. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think I'm a really good example of how luck can intervene in your, your life. So, uh, I was finishing up my PhD work at Penn. I uh, was so far along, in fact, that I was going out for job talks. 
So that's really all the way along that you can get to. I was next door, actually, just just across the way here. Um, so I was going out for my job talks, and actually on the way to my first job talk, I had been struggling that year with some stomach issues and um, ended up getting so sick that I landed in the hospital, and I was in the hospital for two weeks. So mm-hmm. the way that the job market works in academics is it's seasonal. So if you miss a season, you really have to wait till the next season. And I, I obviously, you know, it's not like I popped out of the hospital and was ready to go back out on the job market. I needed a little bit of time off in order to recover. Um, so during that time, I wasn't teaching and I didn't have my fellowship. And so I needed money. Um, and my brother, who had been playing for 10 years already, had been playing poker for 10 years and was quite successful at the game, suggested, well, why don't you play poker? Which sounds a, a little bit out of the blue, but he would bring me out to Las Vegas on vacations when I was in graduate school. And so I could, I had watched him play and, um, you know, I'd heard him talk poker a lot. And, you know, so I knew yep. something about the game and he offered to mentor me. And so in that year, I started playing poker really just to support myself. And the way that I sort of describe it, it's like, you know, I sat down at the table and the heavens kind of opened up for me. I mean, it was, it was really uh, this really interesting, like, super practical application of all the things that I was studying in cognitive psychology, um, where you really had to apply it in real time to this very, very complex uh, problem. And um, so I did that in the meantime. In the meantime, ended up being 20 years. And I, I retired in 2012. So uh, it was a, it was 92 to 2012 that I played. I declared myself pro in 94. Hmm. So I, I never did. I never did go out on that job market. <laughs> Maybe we'll get you back here at Penn one day. Well, uh, I'm, I'm considering it. I'm, I, you know, I'm sort of trying to decide what my next step is. So that's one of the things I'm considering is buttoning up that part of my life. We'll see. I don't know. Well, hey, you got published books. I imagine your dissertation can't be too far behind, right? <laughs> Done most of the work anyways. And what probability are you on, on that PhD program? You know, right now I'm, I'm actually pretty high. I would say I'm like 82% at the moment. It's been inching up as I've been exploring it more and... You know, the thing is that I didn't I didn't leave academics because I didn't like it. Like, I love teaching. And in fact, in 2002, I, I really started teaching again. So between 2002 and two child, uh, 2012, I overlapped teaching, meaning, you know, speaking on the kinds of things that ended up in this book. It's really yeah. how this book developed um, about how poker as a framework might really inform the way that we think about decision making and, and uh, not only exposing uh, where we go wrong, but also uh, sort of giving away to an answer to how you might get it to go a little bit better. Um, and I was doing that for 10 years because I love teaching. And, and when I started speaking again in 2002, it was like, oh, I remember. Like, I really love this. And the other thing is I love research. I mean, obviously, I've been reading research all along. I've kept up to date in the literature. And as I've been sort of exploring, like, well, it would be kind of interesting. Like, I live in Philadelphia. Maybe I should button that up. I don't know. I've been starting to think about, well, what kind of experiments would I run? And I love experimental design. I love the process of science. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, you know. We'll see if we can nudge your probability a- 82, higher 82, 18. 82, 18. That's, but, that's the, you guys can, now you guys feel free. No. I made the market. Go ahead. <laughs> sure. I'll, I'll call up Susquehanna and we'll set up a uh, gambling ring, I'm sure, on this. Uh, they all have bets <laughs> well, on the well, table. Let's talk about what you just did there. So you're setting 82 probabilities. So how, do, how is that, how when you talk about probabilities and all these types of decisions, why why are you doing that and how do you think that's important for people evaluating their own decision-making in life in terms of setting these probabilities? Well, I'm going to start with a simple answer, which is I'm doing it because it it's just a, a more accurate representation of the world. It's like it, the future is probabilistic. Whether any decision is going to work out is probabilistic how it you know of the possible things that you know how it could turn out that's a pro it's probabilistic so uh i know that people don't like to i think that we sort of avoid that like we we want to know that our lives are going to turn out in a certain way that if we're good actors if we make good decisions that our lives will go well that things will turn out the way that we want them to and we really do we're we're, we're sort of addicted to certainty but it's just not accurate. Hmm. So th- why do I say it's 82%? Because that's my best guess. Now, what I mean by that is that I don't know for sure that it's 82%, right? It it could be, you know, if you ask me, it would be more of a range, right? But I'm sort of giving you what the midpoint of that range is. So is that the actual objective probability that I'm going to do this? Not sure. But I'm giving you my best guess at it. And I know that that's better than not guessing at all. 
Because if I'm not guessing at all, I'm doing one of two things. I'm either deciding like it'll happen or it won't, right? Which is, okay, that's not very helpful in making a decision. Or I'm saying it's 0% or 100%, which is a little bit different. So like I'm either sort of going like in the 50-50 range, well, it will or it won't. Or I'm acting like it's certain or it's not certain. Just kind of related to that, you mentioned this thing in your book, uh, this term I've never heard of. It's called resulting. And in finance specifically, we always have to tell people, hey, don't focus on past performance. Focus on process. And focusing on past performance is basically what you deem resulting. So can you explain what resulting is and why that's such a bad way of going about business when it comes to decision making? Yeah. So that actually gets to the second reason that I said 82%. So the first reason is just it's just a better way to represent the world because it's the actual way that you should represent the world. But the, the second is that if you don't, then what happens is that you can fall prey to a whole bunch of bad things that happen after the future unfolds as it does because you haven't thought about it as probabilistic in nature in the first place. You think that it had to have happened that way and that either you should have been able to foresee it in some way um, that the way that the future turns out could be right or wrong, right? So so in other words, if I say to you, well, you know, I think I'm going to maybe do this PhD, I'm 82%, and then I don't do it, you can't come tell me that I was wrong because I wrapped into there that 18% of the time I, I wasn't yeah. going to do it, right? So the problem with resulting is very specific, which is that as we're trying to figure out from the basis of an outcome whether the decision process was good. So we're trying to work backwards from the outcome to the decision process. Well, you guys know, based off of one result, that doesn't really tell you very much, right? We don't have 10,000 coin flips. I have one coin flip. Um, So people aren't really satisfied with this idea of, well, it doesn't really tell you that much about the decision quality because that outcome was certainly wrapped up in the possible futures in that decision, and maybe it was good or bad. I'm not really sure. Can you give me more information? Instead, what they do is they act like those things are perfectly linked. And so they'll say, if it's a bad decision, if it's a bad outcome, rather, then I'm going to derive from that that it was a bad decision process. If it's a good outcome, I'm going to derive from that that it was a good decision process. So there's a very famous example, actually, that I opened my book up with that I think is a great way to explain resulting, which is just about poor Pete Carroll and the Seahawks. Um, in 2015 against the Patriots on on the Patriots one-yard line. Uh, it's second down. They have one timeout. Pete Carroll calls a pass play instead of handing it off to Marshawn Lynch. Obviously, that works out very poorly in spectacular fashion on the biggest stage in football as Malcolm Butler intercepts the ball. And the headlines were brutal. I mean, what an example of resulting, you know? I mean, it, was, it wasn't like, oh, was it a good decision or a bad decision? What were the mathematics behind that? Like, what was the formation? Like, any of the questions that you might ask to try to figure out whether that was good or bad. It was literally just, it was intercepted. You're an idiot. And let's now have an argument about whether that was the worst call in Super Bowl history or in football history. Or the Eagles <laughs> this year and crushing it with all the plays that we did this year. What, what I was going to say, what's interesting about that specific example is in this year's Super Bowl, you know, they did that crazy pass to Brady yeah. and he missed it. You you know, if Foles didn't come back and catch it on basically the same play, everyone would have done resulting where they're like, oh, you know, they're idiots, the Patriots. But that one was super interesting because there was an outcome that could have easily been so you know blamed on resulting but then because it was salt like there was a second run of it it just happened to occur in that same window you know people haven't came out with the same hate and discontent against i have a prediction for you okay let's see if you ask people whether the brady call was a good one they'll say no and the eagles was a great one exactly and i bet you i bet you even with the data sitting back to back and actually interestingly enough with that eagles one and i just did this in a talk Mm -hmm. what i used to tell people is i want you to do a thought experiment Imagine the ball got caught in the end zone and the Seahawks won. What do you think the headlines would have looked like? So I used to ask people to do that. And, of course, they'd say, you know, he's a genius. He outsmarted mm-hmm. Belichick. And I said, guess what? You don't need to do that anymore because Doug Peterson did it for us. Yeah. <laughs> and and people think he's a genius. People think he's a genius because it worked out because Nick Foles caught the ball. What if they had forgone the three points? Just to, And we can do the opposite thought experiment. They forgo the three points. They go for it. The play doesn't work out. Maybe he drops it. Maybe it gets intercepted and now the Patriots go up by four and they end up losing the game. What do you think people would have been saying about that play? Get rid of Peterson. 
get rid of Peterson. And in Philly, by the way, it would have been really good, right? You know, it would have been cars turned over for a different reason. Yeah. So um, I think that those, those exa- you see them in sports a lot, obviously, and investing a lot. And this resulting problem is really hard because, look, here, here's the problem that we have. We live in a noisy system, right? And you got, you got to se- separate the signal from the noise. And if you don't do that, you're not going to learn. So we want to figure out when are we supposed to alter the decision process and when are we supposed to not, right? What, what is the signal for saying, oh, we should go in and tweak? And when shouldn't we? And if we're resulters, look what happens. When there's a bad outcome, we're going in and changing these decisions that maybe shouldn't be changed. Maybe they should. Sometimes they might be mostly due to luck. Sometimes they could be because you made a bad decision. But just because the outcome turned out badly doesn't tell you that. So you use that and you go in and now everybody thinks that was a stupid play and they think that this is not something that you're supposed to do. Or it works out and it was actually not a good call. And now people are saying, oh, we should repeat that decision. And now how are you supposed to become an expert at something? How are you supposed to take the experiences you have and actually improve so that you have better results in the future if you're resulting? It, it really mucks it up. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Andy Duke, author of a new book, Thinking in Bets. And you talk about the conversations and communications when you talk about probabilities and framing this 8218 for your PhD. Talk about the benefits in communication styles when you're sort of in a work setting or life setting, what that does for you to talk about it in probabilistic terms. Yeah. Well, I, I think that people confuse confidence and certainty. I think this is a really big problem. So they think for you to to listen to me, like as a leader, for you to think I'm smart or impressive or um, well-informed, that I need to be expressing myself with absolute certainty. I know it's going to turn out this way. I'm going to present my case and I'm going to tell you why and I'm going to be very convincing. I think the, the problem with that is that if if we understand that there's there's two sources of uncertainty in the way that things turn out. Source number one is luck. Can't do much about that. Source number two is hidden information, right? That we, we just, we don't have all the facts, as I say on the front of the book. There's lots of stuff that we don't know. You know things that I don't know. I know things that you don't know. Wes knows things, lots, a lot more things that I don't know <laughs> because he knows like a lot. But uh, so so here's here's the issue is that our decisions are only going to be as good as the information that we're bringing into the decision, which is really a prediction about how we think the future is going to turn out because any decision is moving us toward a particular set of futures. So there, it's really only as good as our beliefs. And our beliefs are only as good as how much information we have that's informing the belief as well as the way that we process that information. So we should be looking for two things. One is uh, – new information, what kind of information can you share with me? And then also new perspectives on how to process that information, on how to think about it, right? So I want to know the way that Wes is thinking about it. I want to know the way that you're thinking about it, even if we have the exact same information, because that's going to help us think about alternative hypotheses, fill in the gaps in our own knowledge, start to fill in our skill gaps, um, spot our biases Mm -hmm. in how we um, process information. So here's the problem. If I express things with certainty, why would I ever go look for another perspective? Why would I ever go find any new information I already know for sure? And that's going to really hurt us in the long run. It's going to feel really good in the short run, right? In, in the short run, it's like, look how smart I am. I'm so certain. I know everything. But in the long run, it stops me from being information hungry. It stops me from being perspective hungry, from being hypothesis hungry. So if I train myself to express how sure I am, yeah. rather than, you know, being certain, right? And when I say to you, oh, I'm 82%, or if I say to you, I'm 45%, I'm signaling to you sort of, for me, like how much unknown there is for me, how much I think I need to fill in, how much luck might be involved, right? And, yeah. and I need to do that in order to be a better decision maker. Just want to follow up on that, because it's, it's somewhat kind of counter that point, Um but not really. I'll, I'll explain. So there's a lot of these studies where you, you definitely want to go out and, and ask new questions, ask different perspectives, get new information. But then they do all these studies on folks where they give them like the four variables that matter. And they just keep piling them on information. They keep asking them, hey, what's your certainty? What's your confidence bound? And what happens is forecastability doesn't change, but confidence goes you know, skyrocketing because there's almost a situation where if you have information and you put time and endowment and learning more and more – 
unfortunately the the forecast doesn't improve but the certainty bounds get a lot tighter so there's kind of like this this give and take with with information as well we certainly want to chase it but arguably it could it could screw you the other way basically right so i completely agree uh which is why i say you need a really good group so the the solution to that particular problem is making sure that you have other people who are committed to an exploratory style. So let, let me say the difference. Groups can act like a mega individual. So if we're all three bandwagoning together and confirming each other and echoing each other, we just become like one of us on steroids. So that that's not what I'm talking about with a group. I'm talking about a group that's committed to checking each other's bias. So what you're pointing out, and I, I think that this is part of uh, the problem that we have, is that we think that if we kind of know about a bias and we're really smart, that this will somehow solve it. But it actually amplifies it because we get better at saying, but I have all this information and I can cut this information. And so now my certainty has gone up and I know that I'm interpreting this correctly. And we won't even know we're doing it as individuals. But you like you know you see other people and you're like they're so biased, yeah. Right? I see other people. Oh, that's completely biased. They're 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 their point. They're just their world. They have a worldview. They have some sort of theory. Like you know, they're they're just trend followers and they're making sure that the data is supporting that they're trend followers or they're fat tail guys or they're mm-hmm. you know whatever it might be. You can see when they're reasoning toward the belief that they want really easily in other people. So use that to your advantage. Create a really good group that's committed to checking each other's biases, and then actually, then that problem goes away. And so this is work from Phil Tetlock, by the way, who shows this, that it, there's two different styles of thinking in a group. One is sort of mega individual style, um, and the other would be this more exploratory style. And once you get into the more exploratory thinking, um, and the group is committed to that, and they're going to hold each other accountable to that kind of thinking, you start to solve part of it. You really get a solution to that problem. Yeah. So, so you talk a lot about this truth-seeking behavior, and then how to if you have a truth seeking group, how when you're interacting with non you know, the, the people not inside the group and the problems and challenges of I've got a truth seeking group, but then I've got these other people who I have to live in the real world who are not as truth seeking. What are the how do you balance that that back and forth? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. One is to realize that not everybody has the same values that you do and that people can serve different purposes in your life. Right. So I have like people I work out with. I if they're being really biased and talking about like their relationship history or something I, like I haven't made an agreement with them that we're going to truth seek about how much of that is because they're picking really bad partners. Right. right. Like they're just going to talk to me about that. And that's not really why they're in my life. And that's not why I'm in their life. We're enjoying each other for different reasons. So there's different aspects that people are fulfilling in your life. So that's number one is not don't impose your values on everybody around you. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Number two is that if you do, if I, if I am in that situation where like I'm with a workout buddy and they're talking about their relationship history that's been really crappy and I'm suspecting that maybe part of it is because they're contributing to the crappiness, there are ways that you can get there um, without directly challenging them. Um, so you can do a, one of the favorite ones that I have is this sort of yes and exercise, which comes from improv, which is not to disagree with a single thing. Sorry, a single thing they said, which I, I might do if we're we've agreed to check each other's bias. Like I might be like, "Come on, Jeremy, don't you think you think it's like accident? Like ten times in a row, you've been in a bad relationship. You think that has nothing to do with you?" I'd be allowed to say it's that to them. you. It's all them. It's all them. I'd be allowed to say that to you because we have an agreement. But if we don't have an agreement, what I might want to say is, "Wow, that really sucks. I, I, what, that's really bad luck. What do you think? Like in the future, do you think there, there's something you could do that would make it so that you'd be less likely to end up with a jerk?" So notice I haven't, I've done nothing to disagree with what your worldview is. I haven't challenged you yeah. in any way. I've just said, oh, well, how do you think you could fix it in the future? Which is yes, end. Um, and then what that does is it automatically, in order for you to solve that problem, what do you have to do? On your own, you have to go back and think about, well, all right, let me think about where I might have gone wrong in my other relationships, but I'm not the one who challenged you to do that. So there are ways to get people there who haven't consented to the exercise. And the reason why you want to sort of serve that softly um, is because you can imagine for most people, if I were just to say, oh, come on, like you really think you didn't have any part in that, that's actually going to create um, a backfire effect, right? Where you're probably going to entrench more and we're probably not going to be friends anymore. We're going we're to have to take a quick break, but we're going to continue this conversation with Annie Duke right after the break. You're listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. 
You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, alongside co-host Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, talking with Annie Duke, the author of Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. And right before the break, we're talking about uh, a phrase in terms of how you should discuss with people. You talked about yes and. Um, the, the second part of that in your book, you talked about just using the word but, yes instead of but. Maybe you could talk about the just that whole concept of why yes is so much more important. Yes and is much more important than the word but in, in, in communication style. Yeah, so in communication, when you say but, you, you're invalidating everything that came before it. So what you want to be careful about, and, and let me just say, there's no doubt during this conversation I'll say but. It's really, really hard to drop it from your vocabulary. Mm. The the idea, and, and I say this throughout with all of these strategies, is if you can do it a little bit less, you're so much better off. So nothing, it, you're, it, I'm not perfect. Even if you try to do this, you're not going to be, you're not going to be close to perfect, but you'll do it less. You'll say and a little bit more. Um, if you tell me something, you know, oh, I've been in all these bad relationships and it's just because they're all jerks. If I say, well, but don't you think? Notice that what that does is it it's like, no, you're just wrong. Yeah. And what we're trying to do is, look, if we want people to change their beliefs, you have to put them in an open-minded state. If we circle back to one of the reasons why I might say something like I'm 82%, it's actually to ensure that I stay open-minded. Because if I'm 82%, I haven't put myself in a category of right or wrong. I've stayed away from that. I'm sitting in the middle so that if you offer me information that might disagree with might go against the 82%, right? Might yeah. say that, oh, you should be lowering, you should be calibrating down. Now I don't have to reverse from right to wrong. I have to reverse from like 82% to 67. So it, it keeps me in an open-minded state. Well, when you're talking to other people, you want them to be in an open-minded state as well. And but stops that because it invalidates what they said mm-hmm. before, which is gonna cause them to entrench. You've challenged their identity. You've said your beliefs are wrong. The thing that you, you've basically said to you, no, you're wrong. And you always want to avoid that by saying yes and you're saying, I agree, uh, no argument there. So let's think about the future now. Like how, so yeah, that all happened for exactly the reason you said. Let's think about the future and how we might make it better going forward. Yeah. Great thing to do with kids, by the way. Very good. I would definitely agree with that. I have three of them. <laughs> you, you don't want your kids going on tilt or uh, <laughs> be, becoming emotional, the decision makers. They, uh, they're not going to agree to uh, clean up the uh, house anymore if you uh, make them angry. Well, that's true. I'm not sure when my kids are calm I can get them to agree to clean exactly. up the house. But <laughs> well, one thing related to that, it, it's actually kind of interesting because we we're also talking about Pinker where, where it's almost like words can trigger emotional reaction or, or this open, like, rational. Like, I always refer to it with the Kahneman idea of, like, system one mm-hmm. versus system two. But you, you, you talk about this term of going on tilt um, and how that can interfere with your decision making. Do you, you mind just explaining that a little bit more and, and, and how they guys, how you guys came w- about that in poker and, and how to think about that term? Yeah. Um, so when there's some sort of concept that takes a lot of words to explain, but it's very important within some group, uh, generally what, that's how jargon gets created because it's a shorthand for uh, discussing complicated concepts. So in the book, I talk about surfers, right? So there's like these words like for waves that I've never heard of, reforms, double ups, closeouts. To us, they're waves, and then we would just describe them. So a reform is like it's a wave that goes away, but then starts back up again. So we need a lot of words. They just say reform. So it, it's a shorthand for discussing with each other. Well, in, in poker, um, and I'm sure obviously in finance, particularly if it's any kind of high frequency um, trading, um, tilt is one of those things that you need jargon around. So what is tilt? It's getting really emotionally triggered by something that has happened such that you're so emotionally hot that the decisions that you're now making going forward are compromised, which then makes it so that the chances that you have future bad outcomes is now increased. So that's a lot of words. So I could say that. Or I could say tilt. (laughs) So it's a shorthand for me to say, like, if I if I see that you're maybe making really emotional decisions that are affecting your um, that your outcomes, I can say to you, do you think you might be on tilt? Um, And so it's a really easy way to do it It comes from pinball. When you shake the machine, Mm -hmm. it it shuts off um, and your brain actually kind of acts like a pinball machine in this way. So when the limbic system is um, 
lit up. It's actually in an inhibitory relationship to the prefrontal cortex, which is obviously where rational thinking, where system two is. So um, what happens is when you light up the limbic system, the prefrontal cortex gets shut down. And when you light up the prefrontal cortex, the limbic system gets shut down. So, because um, they 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 have an inhibitory relationship. So, and so when you're on tilt, you're likely to take more risk. And is that is that what you is that when you found opportunities in poker to take advantage of people? And sort of, and when people are losing money and sort of investing, that maybe they likely to dial up trying to get back to even. Is that what you sort of? Find? So that would be really the classic form of tilt, and that that's the one that most often comes to mind. What's kind of interesting is that tilt can actually cause the opposite reaction, which is for you to be. Um, risk averse. And, and that's mm. when you're anticipating tilt. So you sort of have being in the state of tilt in the moment, which would be this really hot, lit up limbic system. You're generally going to be trying to take a lot of risk in order to try to get back to even and get out of that state. So it's being triggered by being in the state of losing and you're trying to exit that state. And you'll take on a lot of extra volatility in order to be able to do that. So that's sort of classically what we think about. But you can also imagine, like, if you're trying to avoid that state, what happens? Like, you're trying to avoid getting into that losing state because you're anticipating that feeling of tilt. That actually can cause you to become really risk averse. So it depends on where you are kind of in the the tilt state, the stages of tilt, let's call it. <laughs> Wes, I wonder where people are in the markets today, given we've been to the seven-year run. Markets are at all-time highs. It's sort of like at, in, the, in the poker table. If you had a huge stretch of great success... And then what does that make your reaction to the poker table? And what do you think the markets react, people's today, in terms of where they are investing? Yeah, I mean, just when you when you mentioned this idea of tilt, and then Jeremy talked about how traditionally people think of tilts, like that's when you get crazy and you're going to throw it all on, on one. But I actually intuitively thought the opposite, more in line with what you're talking about, is a lot of times when, when people are like they're loss averse or whatever, they're, they're going on tilt as I ain't taking any risk no right. matter what. And a lot of times in this market, it's kind of the, the counterintuitive and this is also the counterintuition of momentum, is the markets keep going up, I keep missing it, and if I get it now, I'm going to have a huge loss. So if they're getting too emotional and they're on tilt in this situation, they may be under-risking themselves. And if this, you know, I'm not saying this would happen, but if, you know, the market could go up double, triple again, and yeah. it, because they were on tilt, they're almost afraid of losing, of being like the last sucker at the table. Um, I, I don't know. I, there, there's a lot of ways you can use tilt. It's just not being hyper-rational about either being an extreme better or a, or a limited better. It causes, it, essentially, it causes your stance toward risk to be irrational in yeah. general. But it, see, I said, but, haha, I told you. <laughs> and you said something really interesting, which is you were talking about that in terms of people who maybe hadn't gotten in yet and they felt like they had kept missing it. So what's interesting is that regret, if you think of, you, you can have these big regret emotions around uh, counterfactuals. So in general, we're actually really bad with counterfactuals. But this is a case where actually we can sort of imagine it pretty well and it actually causes us to go on tilt. So I didn't invest and the market went up. Ugh, now you're on tilt. And so now all of a sudden you're taking this risk averse because you're like, oh, I, but now I'll get in and then I'll be the sucker. Hmm. So I'm not going to, now I'm going to avoid it because I'm, I feel so bad that I missed out on it in the first place. So we can have these like hypothetical, like, these hypotheticals can actually cause us to go on tilt as well. And actually, I think one of the reasons why sometimes people will hold losing positions um, is because they're so worried about, well, if what would happen if I cashed out and then the stock went up? So I don't, that idea, so, so it's like I'm already losing anyway. So if it goes down, big deal, because I'm already an L. Yeah. But but if I sell it now, like I feel like I'm supposed to, um, and it goes up, then, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be on such tilt. And so they'll actually hold it for that reason, I, I, I think. I mean, that's my hypothesis anyway. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a ton of research called in, – in our literature, it's called disposition effect, where basically the reason people hold losers is because the pain of having to – sell that thing and then have that thing go ripping is just so terrible. And then same thing on your winners. Well, I'll, even even though you should hold on to your winners because that's the rational bet based on the data, people sell them because they're like, eh, if it keeps going up, I, I already banked my 100%, so it's not that big a deal. Yeah, so, it's like you're already a W. Yeah. So, okay, you might be a little bit more of a W, but you're already a W, and what you don't want to risk is, is having it go down while you hold it yeah. and, and cross over into the L. And if you're an, already an L, it doesn't really matter whether you're a little bit more of an L. What you're worried about is you could have been a W, but you sold it. Yeah. I think interestingly also on that side is that this idea of like, let's say you take a whole bunch of losses in a row and then you cash out. 
you'll you'll get into this very risk averse state because you don't want to get back into the L category. On the W side, you've you've sold a lot of winners because you didn't want to risk it, but now you're making your new choice. I think you tend to overestimate your skill and you overestimate your EV because you won a lot in a row. And I think then you'll be too risky in your choices. So one follow-up here. I, I am so deathly afraid of tilt that everything <laughs> we do with investing is done with a computer, period. <laughs> and I don't, I, right out of it. I don't even think about it. But And that's just because I'm an extremist on this. But a lot of people, you know, they do what, they, what I call quantum mental or fundamental investing. And so if someone is going to go down this path where it's potential to have tilt, how would you recommend they minimize this or avoid it? I mean, this is like a major problem. Um, how, how would you try to fix this? Well, I, there, there's there's two two ways. One is through some really good time traveling, and then and then one is through creating uh, pre commitment contracts around your actions in the future. So, uh, a pre commitment contract around an action in the future is just saying, I know that if certain conditions hold for me in the future, that I'm not going to be rational about my decision making. Um, if I go to a bar and I'm drinking, I'm probably not going to be particularly rational whether I should drive home. So I'm going to make I'm going to actually bind my hands and I'm going to take a ride sharing service to the bar. Um, you can also say you could also make a commitment, or I could use my group to make hey when don't let me drive after I've had you know two glasses of wine, and we're all just going to make that commitment with each other. So you can do that in this case too. You can anticipate. What are the things in the future where I know that I might be tilting because of what's happening with my positions? And let me decide now when I'm in a rational state what I'm going to do then, right? So uh, the market's going to go down 1100 You know, Let me I'm imagine some I'm sort of commit. big drop, right? So I'm going to pre-commit as, as to what my actions are. Uh, am I going to sell? Am I going to buy? What am I going to do in my reevaluation? So that does two really good things for you. By having thought about it in advance and created a contract, what that means is that in the moment when we're so deep down inside that moment and we're so on tilt, the fact that we're, we might be about to break a contract actually essentially takes the zoom left lens off for a second. It creates an interrupt to the decision where now you're like, okay, wait a minute. I'm, I, rem- I made a contract around this. I'm going to have to break the contract. So now it causes you a stop and think moment. And it's the think part that's really important because remember your prefrontal cortex is inhibitory toward your the emotional part of your brain toward your limbic system. So once I've created the decision interrupt where I now have to think about whether I really want to break this contract, I'm thinking. And that's actually going to calm my emotions down. Plus, when I was in this rational state in advance, I've already kind of written down. I've decided, like, I've created a choice architecture, which now I have to follow. So all of that makes it so you're much less likely to have tilt influence your decisions. It's not going to fix it entirely. But it's going to make it better. And if you make it better, as we know, that's going to have, you know, just let me improve it by 1%. Think about the effects that that's going to have over the long run. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Annie Duke, author, great new book, Thinking in Bets. Uh, and Annie, one of the things you talked about, Wes, this is a, this will resonate with one of the conversations we had on the show before with Lu Zhang, who talked about the failure of papers to replicate and the replicating anomalies. He studied over like 400 factors and said he found a lot of them failed to replicate. And you had an example in the book of sort of in the psychology literature, I mm-hmm. think it was, of how somebody tried to use the betting markets to improve replication studies. Maybe talk about the betting markets and how that could be tied to scientific research. Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously the, the title of the book is Thinking in Bets. So the argument that I'm making is all decisions are bets. And if we actually thought about it that way, that we would do better because we would we would be thinking more clearly about two things. One is that the future is uncertain, which I think is really important and has a lot of good benefits. The other is that there's risk inherent in any decision that we make, that there's something at stake, that, that even if we're not sort of traditionally what we think about, like investing money in the market or in a blackjack hand or whatever it might be where people understand that there's skin in the game there, that any decision that we make has skin in the game because we could be investing, for example, our health or our happiness or our time or you know anything like that. Like if I choose the healthy thing over the unhealthy thing, that um, there's risk involved in that in terms of how... Uh, my what my health futures look like, right? So, um, so I argue. Okay, so let's make that explicit, and then we're actually going to make better decisions about how the future is going to turn out. So this is this really cool thing that happened. So they were obviously there's this big uh, replication project happening where people are looking at studies and they're trying to you know they're 
it's like a lot of studies. So they were looking at 100 studies that were being run for replication. And they asked people who were experts in the fields that the studies were run in to essentially peer review the study and predict, just based on peer review, whether the study would replicate. What they found was that the people who were experts in the field, when they were just essentially being asked their opinion, um, were a little above 50% on predicting which studies would replicate or which wouldn't. Now, notice in that case, there is risk, right? Your reputation, your, you, there's, but it's not explicit. It's just implicit that there's risk in the prediction that you're making. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of skin in that game. So what they did was they took these exact same scientists who had predicted this from peer review, and they gave them money, and they created a prediction market. So they just had them betting against each other. And all of a sudden, they were above 75%. So you can see what happens once you make it explicit that there's something in play here. Um, and I think that it's a really good example of saying, like, look, once we – when you said to me, why do you say 82%? Well, because that's how the world is. That That's essentially what they did with these scientists. They reminded them that this is what the world is, that when you make these decisions about these things – and it could just be whether a study is going to replicate, that you're making a bet. So let me remind you of that, and all of a sudden they were more accurate. So, so how are companies using this decision-making, bet-making to improve their own decisions? Like, what are some exam- Do you have any examples you can talk to about – companies trying to do this? So this is literature that's pretty well covered. And so people can just Google Google, for example. Google making a bet. (laughs) No, actually, Google Google. So Google is one of the companies that that actually uses prediction markets. So there, there are companies that will actually create prediction markets around trying to figure out what strategies will work or what products will do well. Um, and Google is one of them. Mm. So there are books written about this. I highly recommend people go and look at this literature because they'll see um, that prediction markets can actually really improve decision-making on the corporate level as well. So that speaks a little bit of what you're trying to do with, with your career on these uh, sort of the with the book and trying to advise companies and clients. Talk maybe what you're trying to do on the speaking tour and, and where, where you're going with your, your own career. Yeah, so in 2002, I think, as I mentioned, I started speaking, and it was actually completely by accident. There was a hedge fund called Parallax Fund um, that was run by a guy named Roger Lowe, and he he was very good friends with a good friend of mine, Eric Seidel, who's a big character in this book. And Eric Seidel used to trade um, options, and so that's how they knew each other. And Roger said to Eric, hey, um, I'm doing a retreat with my traders. Um, I'd really like you... Eric, to come and speak about, you know, how poker might inform uh, thinking about risk. And Eric, I think, I think he, A, was busy and B, hates public speaking. So he said, I, you know, I don't really want to do that, but um, why don't, you should have Annie do that because she should actually be a teacher. And so I got asked to do it. I mean, this was completely accidental. It's another place where luck intervened in my life in a really good way. So um, off I went to give the talk. Um, I actually ended up not talking about risk when I talked about tilt. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Because and it's so funny that that's what you you know because like I think traders think about risk all the time it's not what they want to hear about they already yeah. know about risk right so I actually talked about tilt um, so the first talk I ever gave was about tilt um, and from that I started you know so I got up and I gave a talk and it was this and again it was like when I sat down at the poker table it was like oh my gosh this is such a great problem and when I got up and I gave that talk I was like oh my gosh I love teaching I forgot I forgot that I really love teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started getting actually referred from that one talk and then started intentionally developing that as a business and did that for 10 years before I retired in 2012 and then transitioned to doing that full time, which then resulted in this book. Um, and so now that's really what I do. I I go out, I give keynotes. Um, I do a lot of speaking, corporate retreats, some deep dive consulting. And what I'm really, I would consider myself to have two main missions in life, um, in these talks. One is to really try to get people to be comfortable with uncertainty. Like I consider myself an uncertainty evangelist. Like, okay, like let's all, let's all yay uncertainty and let's wrap our arms around it and just accept it and start really thinking about it in an intentional way that's going to make us all really much better decision makers, more open-minded, more compassionate, by the way. Uh, we aren't as judgmental mm-hmm. when we embrace uncertainty. Like all sorts of really wonderful, we become information hungry when we're uncertain. And then the other thing that I'm really trying to um, be an evangelist about is dissent and the power of dissenting viewpoints and listening to other people in a way where you are disagreeing without being disagreeable and really what that does, not just for your own life and, and you know, what, how that improves your own decision making, but for your corporate, corporate culture 
and the success for your business and then also the culture as a whole like what kind of discourse are we seeing out there around dissent and how do we get more comfortable with dissent uh that brings up a question i actually have because I, I agree with you completely that makes a ton of sense and uh, this is kind of a dangerous question but <laughs> it, you know in general like in finance in, in my world you give a talk and you look out there it's 99 percent dudes i'm sure in poker 99 percent dudes and, and almost mechanically you know just the male gene we're, we're probably going to be in the same ballpark so i'm just curious like like honestly why do you think poker and finance are so male dominated like do you got any hypotheses or ideas on that and clearly we know why it may <laughs> not i'm actually curious or any uh, advice just, you might give to people listening in yeah, yeah. Or just yeah i'm just really interested in trying to understand this myself so I, I think that there's I think that there is are, are a couple of things. I, I think that, you know, just from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, stance toward risk is different. Um, so when you get into these, you know, worlds that involve a lot of risk, I, I think that it, it sort of attracts more men. But that being said, there's a lot of cultural reasons why women aren't in those worlds. Uh, one just has to do with what women are encouraged to do. I think for sure. So there's it, this is you know there's definitely a huge interaction here. And the other is that those worlds can be unpleasant for women to be in. Um, you know, I mean, you're in this place that's you know 97 percent men, and it can be kind of an unpleasant place. Um, and so I think there's a lot of sort of selecting, you know, sort of selecting out and that kind of thing. So um, what can we do about it? Well, I mean, I think we need to encourage. You know, I think we need to teach probability a lot better um, in schools. It's been dropping out of the curriculum. So that's part of – I have a, a nonprofit, which is called How I Decide. And one of the things we're trying to do, actually, is get probability back into the curriculum. So uh, it used to be that it was taught really at every level from, like, first grade on up. And now you're really seeing that you're not getting much of it until um, uh, middle school. And if we were to really be pushing, pro you know, probabilistic thinking, getting people to not be so afraid of risk, getting people not to be so afraid of uncertainty, and encouraging our girls – to, to live in that and understand it and be mathematical and that you can still be cool and likable and all of those things, even if you're kind of a math geek, I think we do a lot better. Um, and then I think if we could, you know, be a little bit more open armed on the other side, on the industry side, I think that hopefully, hopefully we could encourage more women to be getting into these worlds. Because I think that a female perspective on this stuff, I mean, everybody shows that when you have teams that are made up of men and women, that they do better than teams that are made up of just women or just men. So if we want to improve decision-making all around, we want different intellectual viewpoints to be coming in. We want intellectual diversity and viewpoint diversity. And one of the ways to do that is to you know, have some women and have some men and get them to make decisions together. Well, a, f a quick anecdote on that. I just came back from a ski trip with my wife, and we took a lesson. And the coach said, you know, women always sort of undercount their abilities and say they're worse than they are. And the men always are overconfident and overestimate their abilities. And you could say in investing, you know, I've heard similar stories that women, you know, there's an overconfidence bias in men, and then they end up overtrading, right. and, and it hurts their, their... And it's good to have both sides. I mean, that's the thing is that... Uh, Look, if you have two people who are equally well-informed, and that's an if, right? They're equally well-informed and they, they own, they have uh, opposing viewpoints. Generally, the truth is going to lie somewhere in the middle, which is what you're saying. You have overconfidence, underconfidence. Get them to talk to each other so that you can come to the middle. Yep. Well, Andy Duke, we're running out of time here. Thank you so much for joining us on our show today. Well, thank you for having me. This was so fun. Been talking to Annie Duke, author of a great new book, Thinking of Bets West. Thanks for coming down to the studio today and inviting Annie. Yeah, of course. I, everyone should read this book, Thinking in Bets. You'll learn a lot. Thank you to our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno, our producer, Patty Hall. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.